of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading Chapter 16, verse 4. After this, that is the transfer of gates from Gaza to Hebron, after this, he, that is Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that, that one could subdue you. The text, as we talked about this last week, indicates, so, naturally, I'm going to betray him. (laughs) He offered me this much money, no doubt about it. No no questions, no opposition, nothing. So, she said to Samson. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. The men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. He said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? So sincere, isn't she? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for 
He has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. This is very ironic and shows again how God always dupes his enemies. So they called Samson out of prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. And by the way, I read a quote this week by John Owen who said, if you don't have the spirit of God, you might as well take your Bibles and burn them. Pretty drastic. That's how helpless we are. That's how dependent we are. That's how this little prayer is not a formality, right? It's like, Lord, if you don't, it, we'll read, we'll study, we'll do all this. You know, those, we cannot benefit. We cannot grow. We cannot embrace and love and trust uh, what God has for us apart from his spirit. So let's pray for that. <clears throat> Lord, we, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in so many ways in Scripture, and and some of them, uh, frankly, to our initial understanding, are are strange. And yet, Lord, it is exactly how you've chosen to show forth the greatness of your salvation, how you've shown forth to show us what it is to obey and what it is to not obey, to encourage us, as Paul writes in Romans 15, that everything written in the Scripture is for our, our encouragement that we may live out our new life in Christ. Lord, we, we pray that you would enable us to embrace this word, to trust you, to love you, to 
see the glory of, of Christ even as he is set forth for us in your word. Bless us, Lord, that we may walk in new life through Christ. Amen. <clears throat> now, if someone uh, wanted to learn from your life, you might, like me, have to admit that they can learn some things maybe that you did fairly well. Look to certain things that you did that say, well, yeah, this and this and this. Uh, you might follow me in that. Uh, I did stick it through school, for instance, or I... Uh, been a faithful husband, all these kinds of things. But there are other areas where uh, you would say, uh, here's some things that I did that would be good for you not to do. Uh, don't follow what I did here. I made these mistakes. I did these things wrong. And the fact that there are some things that you did that they should avoid doesn't mean that they should avoid everything you did. And uh, while there are those things to avoid, there are many things in your life perhaps that would be good for people to follow. And the writers of the New Testament do the same thing. The Bible does the same thing. Um, sometimes, as in Hebrews 11, the, the, the writers of the New Testament hold up the Old Testament community as an example. So it's probably the most famous in Hebrews 11. He starts way back in Genesis uh, with Enoch and comes all the way through uh, nine books of the Bible to David and Samuel. But also earlier in Hebrews, in chapters 3 and 4, he holds up the nation of Israel in the wilderness and says, do not fail to enter into the rest of God as they did in the wilderness and died there. And the same, Paul does that same thing for the same situation in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, avoid the idolatry and the sensuality of, the, of Israel in the wilderness. And it's in that context that he says, he who thinks he is something is going to be nothing, and pride comes before the fall. So look at the, the history of Israel and be humble and dependent upon God and his grace. So from the same people you get examples, and the same people you get warnings, and we've done the same thing with Samson. We began last week with this, this warning, seeing that he's a picture of Israel, right? Seeing that his going to the foreign women is a picture of Israel going after foreign gods. And so he becomes a warning to us against that. We see Samson's desire to turn his back on his holy status before God, finally just giving it away in his, in his confessing these things to Delilah. Because he wanted to be like other men, apparently. He wanted to do things like other men and, and, and be normal, so to speak. And it's a picture of Israel turning its back on its special status and belonging to God, this wonderful privilege. But Israel wanted to be like the nations. They wanted the gods of the nations. They didn't value this incredible relationship that they had with God. And so... Samson and, and Israel are warnings to us because we've been given this new intimacy with God that's been established now through the precious work of Jesus Christ, through the very sacrifice of God to bring us to this wonderful intimacy. All the more should we then value what we have. As Paul says, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price, this price of Christ dying in our place. We're called the royal children of God, no matter how we may suffer or be rejected or despised in this world. 
Now the temple and dwelling place of God, it's not the physical temple. We are the temple. We're the holy place. We even are co-heirs with Christ. How could it be that we will inherit what Christ will inherit? You see, it's by playing these things before us. It's by valuing and treasuring these things. To, to enjoy and treasure our intimacy with God. This is how we live out its happiness and its purity and its dignity in this dark world. It's the high value we place of belonging to God. That's what preserves us from sin. It's not just a bear, stop doing evil, start doing the right thing. It's knowing what you are and who you are, what's been done for you, your amazing privilege as children, royal children of God. So our not compromising with sin is a function of our belonging to God, being the beloved of God, treasuring this relationship one through the blood of Christ. So we see a lot about Samson, that's a warning, but we might wonder, as several of you have said to me, and I've said to myself many times, why is he included in Hebrews? Uh, Why is this man who went to the prostitute in chapter 16, verse 1? But as well, you could ask the question, why would David be included as well, right? Why would David be included? In fact... Probably nobody here has slept with another man's wife and arranged for him to be murdered. I mean, you you couldn't confess it here. (laughs) We'd be bound to tell on you. I'm sorry. I mean, shocking, shocking thing that the king of Israel did. And there are many other... I could go through descriptions of things that happen to God's people and you would want to hide your children, close their ears. They don't want to hear that kind of thing. And so Samson, nonetheless, even though he had these terrible inconsistencies and though he seems to be careening off the walls constantly, Yet he is held before us as a model. What does he model to us? He models first, as you have that in your outline, dependence on God's power. He models a dependence on God's power. At his best, Samson, at the end of chapter 14, for instance, uh, chapter uh, 15, uh, cries out to God, for he is thirsty, he is helpless, he utterly is dependent upon God. He, he confesses there at the end of 15 and verse 18, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. He didn't walk away around boastful and prideful and, you know, flexing his muscles, this kind of thing. He, he was utterly humbled, probably astonished. There's the reason he uh, said some of these things uh, in terms, right before that, when he talked about the jawbone of a, of a donkey, it's probably in a, a, a cry of astonishment that this was done by God's mighty power. 
And so he acknowledges his total dependence on God for what he does not have. And that's so much the faith that is held before us in Hebrews 11. Depending upon God for things that we simply don't have, we could not do, we cannot stand, we cannot refuse sin, we cannot grow in grace, we can't do any of this. We're utterly dependent upon God. And at his best, he demonstrated that helpless dependence and acknowledged that it was only God that gave him this. And that's why he could pray as he did at the, uh, that we see in chapter 16, verse 28. Lord God, remember me, please strengthen me only this once. He recognized that if I do anything at this time, it will be by your strength and your power. And how would that look for us to realize every day our helplessness before God as he did? You've heard me say it before, but that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our Oh, no, uh, the, the prayer says, uh, deliver us from evil, but before that, lead us not into temptation. Well, that should be a daily prayer, right? Jesus says, pray that God will even keep you from facing the situations of temptation. Pray that he will even keep you. Now, you know that in many cases he doesn't. And so, follows, delivers from the evil one. But there's this recognition. Jesus says you need to recognize your weakness. You can't face the battle. You can't face things. You can't can't sustain your strength. And Jesus himself said in John 15, apart from me, you can do not one single good in your life. So the idea of the branch being connected to the vine of abiding in him. He says, only as you're abiding in me. And that's an active, helpless dependence upon him. And we, we tend to do this more in terms of forgiveness than we do obedience. You know, we, we, we tend to think before God, there's no way that I can take my sin away. I'm utterly dependent upon Christ to take my sin away for forgiveness. But to translate that and realize the same helpless faith toward anything I ever do that would be obedient to him. Oh, Lord, apart from you, I will not be a better husband. I'm helpless to be a better. And many of you, as well as me, have exhibited that helplessness in being a better husband or better wives or better parents or better brother or sister to your brothers and sisters. But we are helpless. Let us have that kind of dependence upon God every day. That's one of the reasons we stress worship, daily worship, daily time in His Word and prayer. It's to acknowledge my situation and my need of your grace and to welcome and expect that grace, which leads us to the second thing. He models a confidence in God's care. See, our dependence, our helplessness must move us into this confidence in what God will do for us. And at His best... Samson had faith in that. He expected that God would meet his need in the wilderness. He expected that God would meet his need at the temple. That's why he put his hands on, you know, I said, I need, I need some columns. And he started pressing. Why did he do that? Because he expected that God would save him. He expected that God would come and, and empower him. 
And so this, this intimacy that he had with God in prayer is not known with any other judge, this kind of intimacy. So he's wild and crazy to think about because he did these things that don't seem to fit what a believer will do. And yet, on the other hand, he's the one most intimate with God. He's hard to deal with, for sure. But he cried to him and put his hope in him, pushing against the pillars. You know, and, and some of the most simple things you and I need to push against the pillars, right? To overcome fears of meeting new people or showing hospitality to people that you don't know that well. To uh, Many of us are scared, even here, to meet somebody new. So, how do you believe God for that? Push against the pillars. You, depending upon God, say, Lord, enable me to do that which I'm so scared to do. Enable me to meet this new, to see this person over here. Enable me, Lord, to move into the study of scriptures as I've never before done. I'm scared to death of them. I don't understand them. They seem foreign. It's always impossible to understand. So what do you conclude? Therefore, I'm not going to do it. How about pushing the pillars? How about believing God and saying, Lord, I know, I know you want to teach me from your word. I know you want to equip me and give and reveal yourself to me. Lord, I'm expecting that you will meet me there. Or in prayer, to begin a new habit of prayer. To befriend unbelievers, that is so scary. Or you're a girl and you're standing against a group of girls that's excluding another girl and you know that you could stay in the group if you join them and it scares you to death to possibly or seemingly lose these friends. You just push against the pillars, right? Lord, I expect you to sustain me and help me and comfort me and strengthen me. Be with me, Lord, as I do the right thing. So we can... Act, and as the old hymn, trust and obey. If you trust, you will obey. It's a good little indicator, right, that maybe you're not trusting God. We like to talk about faith. I trust God. I trust Jesus. I trust in his death for me. I trust that he takes away my sin. But if we're not trusting him to move out into new areas of our life, not good. That's an indication of a lack of trust, right? Trust is critical for obedience because we're trusting his goodness. We're trusting his commitment to us. We're trusting his strength, his absolute strength over all things. We're trusting his wisdom. We're trusting his truthfulness. And we get to show that trust by obedience. Then he also models this dissonance with God's enemies. A dependence on God's power, a confidence in God's care, but a dissonance with God's enemy. There's no doubt that he was <laughs> constantly at odds with the Philistines. That's what his whole story is about, this war. In fact, we, we read in chapter 13 when God uh, raises him up uh, that he is he's raising up a savior. He's raising up a deliverer because of the Philistines that have uh, subjugated them for 40 years. And it even says that uh, God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines in chapter 14, verse 4, 
And so whenever the Spirit comes upon him, war follows. The presence of the Spirit in Samson's life means war follows because he is going to be against God's enemy. And I want to remind you of a, a passage in Romans 8 because Romans 8 is the great passage on the Holy Spirit. A lot of people, of course, contrast it with chapter 7, uh, the helplessness and brokenness of trying to live apart from the Spirit that's pictured in the end of Romans 7. And then things suddenly change in Romans 8 because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he begins early in that chapter talking about how uh, this the law of the Spirit of life, that is the principle, the powerful principle of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the powerful principle of sin and death. It's primarily what the Spirit does. He cracks you loose from this treadmill of sin, breaks you free so that you walk in a whole new life of growing freedom from sin. And he talks about the Spirit almost in every breath, uh, every verse throughout that passage. And it's interesting in verses 14 and following, he says, the Spirit cries out, it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. One of the great works of the Spirit, so that you know that you belong to God. You sense His love. You believe His commitment to you. You believe that you are His child and it renews you and refreshes you and comforts you and gives you energy and life to serve Him because you really believe you're His child. The Spirit works on you in that way to convince you of your sonship. But right before that, okay, here's another work of the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this Spirit who convinces you that you're a child of God, accepted and beloved and embraced and cherished by God is the same spirit that enables you to put sin to death in your life. And he doesn't do the one without doing the other. He doesn't let you be comfortable and enjoy the presence of God and then let you live however you want to. And so the same spirit that comforts you in Christ is the same spirit that emboldens you and strengthens you and gives you a warrior fierceness against your sin. That kind of looks like Samson. So that we become Samsons. We become warriors and fighters. We have this constant dissonance with sin, with the enemy. Life in Christ means war, okay? New life in Christ by His Spirit means war. Joy in the Lord means war. Peace and shalom of all things means war. It doesn't seem that that could happen, right? Well, how can shalom mean war? Well, get this quote. I always got a quote. No, I hate it, you know, and I've got a quote for you. But this is a really fascinating passage. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace, shalom, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
You'd think it was like the God of war or the God of righteousness or the God of justice. But it's the God of peace, of shalom, will crush Satan because there can only be shalom and peace when sin is vanquished, when the enemy is gone. And so to be the God of peace, he must be the God of war. And you and I, if we're living in that shalom, if we're living in that rest in him, it will paradoxically mean we are at war with our sin. Do you have a list of your sins that you're praying through? Do you have a list of your sins that you're bringing before God, pleading with Him, Oh Lord, here's what I did again today. Here's what I did yesterday. Here's what I said to my wife. I said it again to my wife, to my husband. Oh Lord, I come before you. Enable me to war against this. But how often we just drift in it. Say the same things, do the same things. We're not even fighting, right? Just giving up almost. But by God's grace, by the spirit that convinces us we're his children, that spirit enables us to fight. And this is a significant thing that even in paradise, even when there was no sin in the world, there was a dragon, okay? There was a dragon in the garden. Why would God do that? Wait, you mean when he made the perfect man and woman, he introduced a dragon in that perfect world? Yes. As a perfect man, he was still at war. Okay? So don't think that you're not to be at war. In that way... Certainly, Samson is an example. But he's also this preview. And don't worry, I'm closer to the end than you think. <clears throat> oh, no, it's just point two. I know the feeling. I've had it, too. I know. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. Their counter, you know, one side, no, yes, no, yes. <clears throat> um, first, uh, he previews in such a wonderful way Christ's uh, miraculous birth. Uh, there is a whole chapter, and, and this is, as we pointed out, this is absolutely unique in the book of Judges, right? Nobody's birth has been talked about at all. And then to spend a whole chapter in the revelation of an angel, uh, the promise that even though you've not had a child, you're going to bear a child. And guess what? He's a deliverer. He's a savior. This is a wonderful picture, you see, of God entering in to Mary. I mean, here's this hopeless situation, hopeless for this woman, but she's a picture of the hopelessness of Israel. Manoah's wife, we don't even know her. She's nameless and she's barren. And God finds this nameless, barren woman. He says, from you is going to come a Savior. Incredible. And this Savior is for these people, Israel, who are not even crying out against the Philistines, as we talked about. They're not even fighting. They've given up. And so... In the dearth of any cry, in the lack of even a cry of 
of faith and helplessness, God acts. He initiates into this helpless, barren woman. And that's how God acts, where there's no human capacity, no ability, where there is nothing, where there's emptiness and helplessness. Be encouraged. If that is your situation, you are ripe for God's action. That's where he loves to act. That's where he always exalts himself, is among the helpless. He even says, I dwell among the broken. I I dwell in heaven, and here's the only other place I will dwell. This is basically what he says in, in Isaiah 57. I dwell with the brokenhearted, the dependent broken people. That's where I manifest myself. And so he acted in just the same way, even a more dramatic way, right, in the birth of Christ. He acted for a woman who didn't even have a relationship with the man. Absolutely impossible. Israel was in the wilderness. God showed that he didn't have to feed his people with bread made from wheat that's grown months in a field. He can make bread fall out of the sky if he wants to. It shows I'm as much the Lord of the one as the other. And so here... He shows that he can create life in a womb with union, without union. Barren people, old and barren like Abraham and Sarah, it doesn't really matter to God. He's the Lord of life in every circumstance. It's previewed here. It's fulfilled in the very birth of Christ. And one thing that you you and I need to gather from this is God's constant, relentless desire to bring about salvation for his people. Because that's what that's about. Why does he visit this woman? Why does he visit Mary? I must save my people. (laughs) And I take the most helpless situation and I bring it about to show my initiative, my power, my capacity, my desire, my zeal to do this. And so for you, he often, as one says, has, he often prefaces a great work with great difficulties. Just remember that. He often prefaces a great work with great difficulties. And just because things seem to have caved in does not mean that God is absent because he is always present to grow you and shape you and use you in every difficulty. And just to think, if I'm in a great difficulty, it's just the place where God does a great work. He's always hands-on. He's like this sculptor who rises early every day and works late into the night, never takes his eye off his work. That's what God is doing with you. Never takes his eye off sculpting you and shaping you and building you and forming you. I'm going to skip because we've talked about this a lot and how he previews Christ's holiness and possession of the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit is mentioned constantly in connection with the birth of Christ and the life of Christ, the baptism of Christ, leading him into the wilderness, leading him back, beginning his ministry, in the midst of his ministry, even enabling him to give himself up on the cross. And then Christ becomes the one who pours out the Spirit. And so, as we said that time when we talked about this, don't look at what happens in in Samson and think, well, that's the spirit in Samson. It's just us. Rather, Scripture turns that around. And like in 2 Corinthians 3, it says, the glory of the old covenant 
is as no glory compared to the glory of the new, in which, by the Spirit, we are being conformed to the glory of Jesus. There's your glory. Not just just measly defeating some Philistines. Scripture kind of at that point says, yeah, yeah, it was great. It was, it was okay, fine. But here's the real thing. I am forming people in the image of my son by my spirit. That's what God's about. That's what all of this was leading up to. This was just preparation. This was just preview. This is a trailer. Here's the movie. It's here. Go and see it. <laughs> Enter into it. Live it out in your life. You have the spirit. It's been poured out in Christ Jesus. He previews Christ's suffering and death. He was rejected by his own people. Christ was rejected. He was handed over by his own leaders into the hands of the pagan overlords, as was Christ. He was mocked and scorned in his death, as was Christ. And he cried out to God in his death. Even Christ cried out to God in his death. But how different was their death? As many commentators have pointed out, here is Samson dying with his enemies. And Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 5, he died for his enemies, in the place of his enemies, which we were. That's the glorious death of this, you might call him, the greater Samson. The one who sacrifices himself and delivers us by his sacrifice, who has compassion on his enemies who hated him and draws them out of darkness to embrace them and make him his children. That's the true Samson who dies and draws us to himself. There's true kingship, right? The kings of this world, everything gravitates toward themselves. There's so often the abuse of power. There's so often the gathering of riches to use their power for themselves. He who has all power constantly pours it out to the benefit of his people. And it's exhibited first and foremost in this greatest uh, show of the glory of God. Here's the glory of God. He sacrifices himself for his people. There's the greater Samson. And finally, then, he previews Christ's defeat and judgment of his enemies. Isn't it glorious that Christ's death ultimately saves the whole world from satanic tyranny? Samson, as we gather, because it says that he will be the beginning of the deliverance, he took out 3,000, apparently 3,000 leaders of the Philistines, and he apparently stayed their control, gave a little breathing space for Israel. But we see right back later with Goliath and the fighting. In fact, it's the Philistines that kill Saul and Jonathan. And it's only under David that the Philistines are finally delivered. But here, the greater Samson, Jesus Christ, says now, at the point of his death, now is judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He will not hold them any longer. I will draw them to himself. I will crush his hands. He will hold them no longer. I will gather them. 
And John says in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Or Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, to redeem us, as Titus, he says to Titus, from all lawlessness. And so the Lord Jesus, even as Samson destroyed the beast, the lion, so Jesus, in the end, as we read in Revelation, destroys the final beast. He destroys all authority and all power that is pictured as a beast, both in Daniel and in Revelation. Christ is the one who finally destroys all of this and casts it into the lake of fire. Samson brought judgment on the Philistines with the foxes, but Jesus will burn all things in judgment. And the whole, he said himself, I came to cast a fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And so every false god like Dagon cast down here, now every false god in the world will be cast down in that last day and every knee will bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's your Samson. There's someone worthy of your obedience, worthy of your fellowship, worthy of your allegiance and everything that you have. This glorious one who would die for sinners. And in his train, we fight. We resist the devil, James says, and he flees from us. Or as Paul says that we read, God will soon crush Satan under our feet. Somehow, some way, we will participate in the glorious Samson-like victory that Jesus will bring in this whole world and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will participate. We will participate. We who belong to Satan and serve Satan, amazingly, will crush Satan by the grace of Jesus. Let us pray. O Lord, great is your salvation. Great is your Savior that you've raised up for us. Oh, how glorious is our Savior Jesus. How strong he is. How easily he defeats his enemies. How good he is to sacrifice himself for us. How holy he is. How perfect he is. How faithful he is. Oh, Lord, he wins us. He keeps us. He holds us. He nourishes us. He gives us His Word. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His presence. He gives us finally all things. He makes us co-heirs with Him. How can it be? Oh, Lord, may we walk in His new life that He has won for us. May we share His strength. May we walk in the strength by His Spirit. Lord, may we fight against sin and against our enemy, as Paul says, is not flesh and blood, but spiritual forces. May we resist Satan, the devil, and may he flee from us. And Lord, according to your promise, may one day we crush Satan under our feet. In our union with Jesus Christ, the greater Samson. Amen. Thank 
for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?